yesterday speaking about the birth of Krishna, Govinda. Uh, six, six children, six sons were born to Devaki and Vasudeva in the prison house, and Kamsa killed all of them, all these six infants. Seventh child, the uh, seventh child was Balaram, Krishna's older brother. When we uh, chant Hare Ram, of course that can refer to Ramchandra, and, or also Balaram. Balaram, Krishna's older brother, uh, transferred himself from the womb of Devaki to the womb of um, Rohini. Rohini was a Yadu princess who had taken shelter in Vrindavan. In Vrindavan, the place where Krishna would grow up as a child, um, the residents of Vrindavan, Nanda, Krishna, who became Krishna's foster father, they were very closely, uh, intimately connected to the Yadus, and they were uh, allies of the Yadus. And so when Kansa began to persecute the Yadus, some of them took shelter in Vrindavan, including Rohini, a uh, Yaru princess. Now it's interesting that there is a there's a personality called Yoga Maya. Yoga Maya. Uh, Maya, in general, that word uh, simply means uh, power, mystic power, and it comes to mean uh, for spiritual practitioners there's a very strong sense of the illusory energy of God that. Um, it's that power of God which tests our sincerity, tests our devotion, tests our commitment to reality by offering different kinds of uh, illusory alternatives to reality. And uh, so often in the Bhagavatam jargon, uh, that illusory spiritual power ultimately of God is called Mahamaya. And Yoga Maya is a spiritual power of God which uh, does the opposite, enlightens souls. And also sort of the, um, manages Krishna Leela. So for example, in this case, it said that Yoga Maya, this goddess, actually transferred Balaram from the womb of uh, Devaki to the womb of Bhogini Vrindavan. So when everyone knew that uh, Devaki was pregnant, so when Kansa came to kill the seventh child, uh, he was told that actually she had a miscarriage and there was no child, which made him think that even the, uh, even the celestial voices can't be trusted nowadays. Anyway, so the seventh child uh, was known to the world as a miscarriage because actually that was Balaram, Krishna's older brother, who, was in, who ended up taking birth as the son of Rohini. It's very famous as Rohini Nandana. This is Krishna's Dashoda uh, Nandana. Anyway, so then the eighth child. Kamsa was just sort of warming up. I mean, even though the voice had said that it was the eighth child that would kill him, he thought, you can't be too careful, you know, in matters like this. So he decided to kill all the children. And now, again, Devaki was pregnant. And this was the eighth child. This was the child that would kill him. So, uh, this is a very well-known story. There's... Um, unlimited Indian art that depicts this. This is a, a favorite theme of Indian art that Krishna took birth in that prison house and 
in order to assure his parents that he was not a helpless infant, he first, in fact, it said he was he, he appeared in the mind of Vasudev. Then he went into the heart of Deva, came into her womb, and then came out. He came out as Narayan, as as we chant every day. Um, very beautiful that 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 prayer that Karomi Jagat Sakalam Parasmai Narayan Aiti Samarpayami. So Narayan is sort of the um, how should I put it? From the Vaishnava point of view, Krishna, uh, Narayan is sort of God at the office, and uh, Krishna is God at home. It's, it's it's just like a person at home uh, relaxes and just does whatever they want, but when you go to work, you have to sort of be a little more formal and dress up and so on. So Narayan is sort of, in this case, God at the office, uh, taking care of the material universes and so on. So uh, Krishna first appeared as this majestic, sort of almighty form of Narayan, just to check in, let his parents know that, you know, who he was. And then, having done that, he transformed himself into this little infant Krishna, like a helpless child. So, even though his parents had seen this opulent, almighty manifestation of Narayan, they still thought they were still fearful. They were parents because now he's a little infant. <coughs> And uh, that, um, of course, overwhelming desire to protect the child sort of took over their consciousness. And uh, in a sense, we have that same, not duality, but, the, but those same two moods. For example, those of us, uh, many of us are trying to serve God in different ways, and, and we know God has a plan, and yet at the same time, we worry over you know, doing things right and what will happen and so on. So it's natural that, that in the service of God, one still cares about what one is doing. So in this case, Vasudev and Devaki, uh, more fireworks. Vasudev and Devaki decided that uh, they obviously could not leave Krishna there. They had to get Krishna out of there. And so Yoga Maya stepped in. Yoga Maya stepped in and uh, unshackled Vasudev. Uh, Vasudev and Devaki were actually in shackles, in iron shackles in the prison of Kansa. Tell us the judge. So, so Vasudev and Devaki were in shackles. And so then you could say miraculously, or really just by Yoga Maya's power, she opened the shackles and Vasudeva was released. Vasudeva then took the infant Krishna and he had to cross the Jamuna River because he wanted to take Krishna to Vrindavan because that was sort of like a safe haven. Vrindavan was the place where the residents there uh, would protect any member of the other dynasty. And so... He had to cross the Jamuna River, River, there was a storm, the river was swollen and overflowing, it was extremely dangerous, and so Yoga Maya simply parted the river, opened a path in the river, and uh, this is, you see many paintings of this in, in India, Indian art, and so Krishna, Vasudev took his baby child, crossed the river, went to Vrindavan, and at that time, Jashoda, the famous Jashoda, had just given birth to a female child. And so Vasudev switched babies. And it said that uh, Jashoda had a difficult childbirth. So the child sort of came out unexpectedly when I was there. And she herself was unconscious. And so he switched children. 
switched babies and then took the female child back to the prison house. And uh, you could say, why didn't he just run for it? Well, first of all, because his wife would have been killed, and second of all, because Kangse had this, you know, his spies and agents and people everywhere, so there's really nowhere to run, as they say, nowhere to hide. So he took this female child, went back into the prison house. The next morning, Kangse was informed that the baby had been born, so he immediately went there to kill the child. And instead of finding Krishna there, his old enemy, he found a girl which made him really think, what is going on? You can't trust celestial voices. But Kongsa was so cruel, he decided to kill this female child anyway. And this is, I think, one of the great scenes in the Bhagavatam. Uh, this, of course, the story is told in, in, in different places, but especially in the Bhagavatam. He, he wrenched this little uh, female infant away from the mother. He grabbed, you know, the mother, you can imagine the mother's crying, saying, spare this child. But uh, Kangsa ripped the child out of the mother's hands and then took the, this little girl, infant, just born, by her legs, little legs, and he was going to smash her against the stone floor of the prison. So he went to do this, to smash her, but she actually slipped out of his hands and flew and went up into the sky and revealed herself as the goddess, as um, who's known by many names, Devi, Shakti, Yodamaya, and so on. Bhadra Kali, the, the many, many names of the goddess. And um, and she appeared in the sky with all of these terrible weapons that you've seen in Indian art, you know, that uh, you don't mess with the goddess. <laughs> so she appeared in the sky like this, and she told Kansa that the child who will kill you is now alive in this world. And, uh, and then she said, uh, it, Basically, uh, don't be cruel to Vasudeva and Devaki because things will only go worse for you. So, so this was very shocking, of course, to Kamsa. And then the goddess disappeared, and Kamsa, in this shocked by all this, released his sister, cousin sister, and her husband, released Vasudeva and Devaki from prison, and uh, was actually was very badly shaken by this whole experience. Uh, but Kamsa was not one to be to succumb to virtue, and so uh, his minister sort of gave him a pep talk, a demonic pep talk, and said, "You know, we can we can deal with this. Uh, you know, the goddess has powers, but we also have powers. We're not ordinary human beings. We have to use what we've got." And so Kamsa again decided that he had to go after. And he was informed that actually the, the demigods or the, the gods would come to oppose the, the, the demons uh, could be anywhere. And especially they had in a sense surrounded him. They were, some of them, they, they were all over the countryside waiting for their opportunity. So Kansa, uh realizing that, that the, the child that was killed and was alive on the earth then ordered that every male child that had been born within forget the time, uh, so many weeks or months, be killed. And so he sends his agents all over the countryside killing every male child. That was Kansa. Anyway, Krishna, uh, of course, was safe in Vrindavan, and we're going to get back to the Pandavas in a moment. Uh, but the, the pastimes, the Leela, the activities of Krishna going, going, growing up in Vrindavan are probably the single most uh, 
popular stories in Indian history in terms of uh, activities which have inspired visual arts, music, poetry, theater, uh, books, everything. Uh, Krishna's activities as a child in Vrindavan, playing with the cowherd girls. Uh, Bishop Arminda did that, Rasa Leela, which is perhaps the most famous activity. Krishna playing like that. These are probably the most popular stories in Indian history. And um, just one more word before we get back to the Pandavas. Who, and remember, Arjuna is the same age as Krishna. Bhima is one year older, Yudhisthira two years older, the twins one year younger. So Kamsa, at this point, uh, Kamsa gradually understood that Krishna was in Vrindavan, and he became determined to kill Krishna. At this point, he didn't want to go personally and kill him because he thought that might not be prudent. So he sent all of these powerful, I don't know what you call them, I mean, monsters, I don't know what you call them monsters. They were actually great yogis, but yogis that used the dark side of the force, to put it simply. And uh, they had this power of Kama Rupa, which literally means desire form, Kama Rupa. And that means that by their yogic power, they could transform themselves in any form they wish. So, for example, Putana. Just to give you an example of these demons that attacked Krishna, the first one was Putana, who was a uh, sort of this monstrous uh, witch in the bad sense of the word, because it's a good sense of the word witch. But she was a bad witch, and uh, sort of this hideous form, and she transformed herself into this extremely beautiful young lady, like a goddess, and entered Vrindavan. She was so beautiful and looked so like, like so much like a goddess that no one asked her anything. You know, no one asked her, like, what are you doing here? And she went straight to the house of Krishna and began to uh, admire the, the infant and then said to her mother, your child is so beautiful, can I nurse her? And even to show that Krishna's mother was, or beguiled was, in visit this Putana had appeared in such a beautiful form, so she handed over the child. Putana had smeared on her, the nipple of her breast, she'd smeared the most deadly poison. And the idea, of course, was to kill Krishna. This was, she was an agent of Kamsa. So she took the child in her lap, and Krishna, uh, even as an infant, and this is an important point that's always made, that Krishna did not become God by this or that practice. He even as an infant, he understood Putana's intention, so he accepted her breast, but he not only sucked the milk from her breast, he sucked out her life. And as, as Putana realized that her life was being pulled out of her, she panicked and began to scream and shriek and, and, and try to get the child off of her and was, was crying out to the child, let go of me, let go of me. And, uh, and, but uh, Krishna pulled out her life. And when, when, of course, once she was dead, she lost her power to maintain that artificial form, and she suddenly, before everyone, like transformed into this hideous being. And uh, but Krishna thought, well, I did drink the milk of her breast, so technically she was a mother. So he gave her liberation. So this this is kind of the spirit of Krishna Leela. You know, he's a good sport about these things, <laughs> even even with his would-be assassins. Anyway, Kamsa. Kamsa sent many 
of uh, his agents, and, and we won't go into all those stories now because that's more in the Bhagavatam, but Krishna sent uh, all these different asuras. These were the asuras. Krishna sent all these asuras to kill Krishna, and Krishna remained undefeated. And all the asuras were killed. And it, it's amazing all the different forms they took, all these wild creatures. And, and, and Krishna, so he was, you know, he sort of had this daily demon killing festival. And he would also uh, dance with the gopis and steal butter and all these very famous activities. Now, meanwhile, back in the Himalayan mountains, Himalaya, Hima, by the way, in Sanskrit means cold or snow. So an alias place, so the place of snow, the place of cold, that's what the word Himalaya means. The Pandavas. Now, here, here's a very important point. The Pandavas are also growing up. Again, Arjuna is Krishna's age. And... Um, in order to understand the Mahabharata and things that are going to happen later, it's actually important to remember that the Pandavas grew up not as Kshatriyas, not as warriors, but as children. They actually grew up as Brahmins. And not only grew up as Brahmins, they grew up as yogis, as sages. So when, you, when we talk later about some of their behavior there, even though they're these very powerful warriors, sometimes they're reluctant to use their own power, we have to remember that they actually grew up as sages, as, as, as little sort of kid yogis. And, uh, you know, with everything, with the deer skin and the dreadlocks, and I mean, I mean the, you know, it's like that hair that you don't really, you know, it's like, if you're a yogi, you don't brush your hair three hours every day. And so, so those are the Pandavas. Now, meanwhile, Pandu's curse. One, one more point I'll mention, and I'll get to Pandu's curse, and that is, the Pandavas really had taken birth in this world to assist Krishna in, in the mission of saving the world and the universe from these asuras. And uh, when Krishna gave his original instruction to the, uh, to the creator Brahma, who then passed it on to all the, the asuras, the gods, that they should now come to the world, he specifically said, Yadushupa Janyatam, that you should take birth. He said, with your wives, they can also come. You should take birth with your, in the Yadu dynasty. Now the Pandavas, throughout the text of the Mahabharata, are constantly called the Bharatas because uh, the Kuru dynasty, they were, by Dharma, by law, they were Pandu's sons, and therefore they were in the Kuru dynasty, which was also called the Bharata dynasty because Bharata was an ancient king in this dynasty. Genetically, though, actually, apart from the law, uh, the only earthly blood they had was from the Yadu dynasty because their mother, Kunti, was a Yadu princess, the Yadu queen. And therefore, uh, all of their, you could say, earthly genes, because their fathers were gods, so their earthly genes were all from the Yadu dynasty. And they had a very special connection with Krishna also because um, it's understood within the tradition that the Pandavas and Draupadi you'll hear about the, this great woman and all these personalities, Kunti, they're actually eternal associates of Krishna and they travel from one universe to another uh, displaying these pastimes so that uh, so that people can sing about them, meditate them, meditate on them and, and practice uh, this bhakti yoga. In any case, there's this very special connection between the Pandavas and Pandu and Krishna and um, the Yadus the Yadus, who knew that Krishna was in the world, sent their personal priest 
to the mountains to Pandu to consult with him and to explain to him what was happening, that, that Krishna had come, that the Asuras were becoming more aggressive. And uh, anyway, so, the, so the, the Pandavas grew up in this way, and then at a certain point the curse acted. And it, it was in spring, which is, you know, spring tends to be kind of a romantic time of year for those so inclined. It was spring up in the mountains, and the wildflowers were blooming, and uh, it was sort of a warm day for the mountains. They were about, uh, probably about 10. There's a place, actually, yeah, on the way to uh, Badrikashram. You may know that place. Was it Padukeshwara? Which, where some people say is the place where Pandu was living. Anyway, uh, so Madri, this beautiful wife, Madri, and they're, they're still young. He's, Pandu and his wife are still young people. They're not old. And uh, they were just in the mountains surrounded by yogis, and she was sort of, you know, wasn't wearing that much because it was just them up in the, up in the mountains practicing yoga. And Pandu saw her and uh, felt this uncontrollable attraction to her which he had controlled. He, he had become a perfect yogi, he had become self-realized, but because the curse was now acting, he felt this uncontrollable uh, desire to have Madri. And so uh, he saw her there in the forest and he approached her and, and she, of course, immediately understood. I mean, it's not, I mean you know, women understand when some man is approaching them with certain intentions. And so she understood exactly what was happening and of course she was terrified by this idea because she knew it would be his death. And so she, you know, she tried to reason with him, but saw that he had lost his reason because of his curse. And uh, then she tried to physically keep him away, which, you know, good luck, because he was a, he was Pandu. And so he actually embraced her, and at the moment of trying to enjoy with her, he died. And there's a very moving scene where Madri let out this terrible cry which was heard everywhere in the forest because you know, they're up in the mountains, everything echoes, and, and she let out this terrible cry. And uh, as soon as Kunti heard it, she knew exactly what it was. And so there's a scene where Kunti tells all of her children, stay here, don't go, because she, she knows what it is. So anyway, she goes there and, and she sees what she knew, what she already knew had happened. And um, so at that point, Everything has changed. I mean, obviously, the, every, everyone's life will never be the same, and so they have to, apart from all their grieving and, and all that, they have to decide what to do now. They have to decide what to do. And um, so, for one thing, Madri, th there, there was a, a practice called Sati, which became infamous in later Indian history, where uh, a wife would enter sometimes, if she so chose, the husband's funeral pyre. And this became sort of a, like a murderous forced practice later in Indian history, which the British outlawed, the British stopped it, where women were forced to literally walk into the husband's funeral pyre and give up their life with him. There are cases, actually, even today, of romantic, like, like where there's a couple who are so much in love and one of them has a terminal illness, the other one decides to die with them. I mean, I remember reading about, there was one famous author in England that was a case like that, and they go, was it Arthur Kessler or something like that? In any case, uh, this was 
what we see in ancient India is that especially wives who are advanced in yoga actually have the power. There's such a thing as a yoga agni, a yoga fire. We see it, for example, in the story of um, the wife of Shiva. Parvati. Actually, she wasn't called Parvati in that life. She was called Sati, isn't it? In fact, she, probably the, the practice is named after her. She was called Sati. And uh, the famous incident uh, of, the, of the sacrifice of Daksha, who was her father. Daksha, her father, insulted Shiva. And she was so offended that she decided that she would give up the, a body that she received from that man, because that man had so greatly offended Shiva. And so she simply went into samadhi in yoga trance and created this yoga this fire from her own body and gave up that body and then came back again as Parvati. In any case, um, very advanced souls could actually uh, go through the fire into a higher realm. I mean, don't try this at home. <laughs> this is, I mean, we're not, this is definitely not something we should do. This, is, this, is, this was done actually in former ages when people had powers and, and levels of consciousness that we cannot imitate. And so, anyway, Madri decided, not that she was forced, she decided that she wanted, through this yoga fire, she wanted to go with Pandu. Because, and Kunti actually also wanted to go with him. They, because and they knew they had the power to actually go with him to wherever he was going. But um, Madri argued that, first of all, it was that it was at a moment when he was trying to, he wanted to be with me when he died, and I have to go with him and fulfill that desire. I have to go with him wherever he goes and fulfill his desire. And also, uh, also in the text, Madri admitted that, she said that, Kunti, you are spiritually superior to me, and you can raise all five sons as your own children without discrimination, and I... I don't have that same power. That inevitably I will see my own sons, to at least to some extent, as my own sons. Whereas uh, Kunti was so, she had this, uh, was on a spiritual level where she could see all the sons equally. And so those are the two arguments Madri gave. Kunti reluctantly accepted, and uh, Madri. Uh, there's actually two different versions of this in Mahabharata. Because there were different revelations, different stories coming down in different parts of India, they kind of got, and the tendency in Indian history was just to be inclusive, and if there were different versions of stories, just to keep both of them rather than choosing. And so one version is that Madri actually entered the fire, that Pandu was cremated right there, and Madri entered and went with him. Another version is that Madri simply by her own yoga powers, because remember, the women also, Madhya and Kunti, have spent several years practicing very, very serious yoga. And they've also become highly realized. And another version of the story is that Madhya simply gave up her life. She had that power to simply leave the body. And, that's, and um, that version I kind of find a little more interesting because there is, uh, I think, if you can imagine, I don't know if any of you ever go to movies, but... You can imagine, I think one of the most dramatically, one of the most visually dramatic scenes of the entire Mahabharata. If you know, if you know the topography, the, the, the geography of India, they were high up in the Himalayan mountains. And when you come, of course, Sankar knows all about this. And when you, when you come down from the mountains, 
Uh, of course, you come into the foothills and then down into the Ganges Valley, uh, you know, which is sort of like the main population center. The Ganges Valley, the Jhumna also flows part of the way. And so you can imagine that, that there's... Um, Dhritarashtra, by the way, sent for the children. They were, dis- they were discussing, like, what do we do now? And Dhritarashtra, who must have had different motives. For one thing, he thought, well, these are my nephews. I take care of them. And for another thing, he thought, these are the heirs of the throne. I better take care of them. <laughs> and so you can imagine, imagine this visually, a, uh, this funeral procession, this royal funeral procession. Uh, with, and, and according, again, according to this version, Madri did not enter fire, but simply by yoga power gave up her life. And uh, so the bodies of Madri and Pandu are coming down from the, these highest mountains in the world. And of course, surrounded by Brahmins and yogis who live with them there and who are accompanying them. And uh, Kunti and these boys, these young children. There's one reference in the Bible as far as how old the Pandavas were at this point. Uh, there's a statement in the Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Purana, which says they were uprapta yovana. They had not yet reached adolescence or youth. Yovana means youth as opposed to childhood. And there's a statement, uprapta jovana. They hadn't yet, so they were still children. They were perhaps 10, 11 years old. And in any case, in the Mahabharata, there's approximately that age. Now, give or take a year to approximately that age. Actually, around the same age that Krishna is doing very amazing things also. At that time, that Krishna, I'll mention that in a second. Anyway, so the funeral procession comes down, and you can just see them coming down these mountains, through these mountain trails, coming down into the foothills, and finally into the great valley of the Ganga, and uh, one of the great regions of the world. And so, in terms of the psychology of the Pandavas, Talk about boys who were raised in innocence, sort of like, you know, from the hills. These were boys, these were, these were children who, up to this point in their life, had never seen, among the things they had never seen in their life, a city, a horse, an elephant, an army, a big building. I mean, they'd never seen more than, you know, a few dozen people together in any one place. And when they came down to the mountains, they, they came down as these little child yogis. They had you know, matted hair, and they were wearing these, this deer skin that the yogis wear, and they just came down. And so suddenly, so if you imagine all the shocks to these children, first of all, their father just passed away, and one of their two mothers just passed away, and, and of course, Madhuri was a mother for all of them. So two of the Pandavas are orphaned, the other ones lost two-thirds of you know, their, their their parents, and for the first time in their lives, are not only coming into society for the first time in their lives, but they're coming into the imperial capital. And so they go straight from the, this yoga ashram, maybe 10, 11,000 feet up in the mountains, and they suddenly, they're in this imperial capital. And so you can just imagine what it must have been like for them. And according to Dharma, and, and these are children who are completely devoted to Dharma. And so now, even though they're, they're in this traumatic state, state uh, by Dharma, Peter Rothko is now their father. Of course, I mean, their father was their father, but 
In fact, in the text, if, if you read the Sanskrit of the Mahabharata, uh, Dhritarashtra is often referred to as the father, even in reference to the Pandavas, because by Dharma now, he had to take that role of being their father. And, and that's why uh, what Dhritarashtra eventually did was considered so despicable, because by Dharma, he was now their father, or had to act as their father. And so here the Pandavas come down, they're grieving, Kunti is still, everyone's in shock, and they're not there more than a, just a few days, a short time, when Vidura, the wisest of, the, of their uncles, calls them aside, Kunti, and perhaps Yudhisthira, the older ones, and says that, uh, by the way, uh, there may be a plot to assassinate you. So here, the parents have died. They come from the mountains where they've lived their entire lives into this imperial capital full of horses and elephants, armies, political intrigue, and just everything in the imperial capital. And then they learn that uh, some people in the capital want to kill them. So, um, so that's the state of the Pandavas. Krishna. Now we'll just go back to Mathura. And by the way, if you want the geography, uh, again, Hastinapur is on the Ganges River. Here's the Ganges coming down. And the... Uh, yes. Here's the Ganges. And then it's the west of the Ganges. That's west for you, right? Yeah. East. Oh my god. That's west. Okay, the Ganges east of the Jamuna. Okay, so for you, here's the Ganges and Jamuna, right? East? No. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, Jamuna and the Ganges. Forget it. So, anyway, it's north. Hastinapur. Yeah, there's Hastinapur. And then uh, and then south of there is uh, Vrindavan. Actually, to, it's, it's maybe about uh, maybe 100 miles or so to the southwest. So Krishna, meanwhile, Kamsa, having failed in all of his attempts to kill Krishna, is going to, feels he needs a home court advantage. And so he's going to bring Krishna to Mathura from Vrindavan and kill him there, where he's got all his armies, all his men. He realizes just sending Asura agents to Vrindavan is not working. I need him on my own turf, so to speak. And so there's a famous scene where Kamsa sends a Kura to Vrindavan to bring Krishna to Mathura. And, uh, I mean, he sends a courage to Vrindavan to bring Krishna to Mathura. And, of course, that's the famous scene with the gopis. That's one of the most famous scenes in all of Indian literature where the gopis are heartbroken because Krishna is leaving them and they, they actually throw themselves in front of the chariot and try to physically stop Krishna from leaving and so on. Anyway, I mean, the, Krishna does leave and the gopis are not trampled. And so then Krishna goes to Mathura where Kamsa has arranged a, a wrestling match. This is not rigged. It's not like, you know, modern wrestling where it's fake. This is more like, actually what they call wrestling then is more like what we would call mixed martial arts, if you know about that, uh, where you can sort of do anything. You can punch, you can kick, you can do anything. And so Kamsa arranged these uh, great wrestlers, these, these powerful, sort of these killer fighters. And Krishna was only about 12 years old. So even the people in the audience thought, like, what's going on? What's, well, to make a long story short, Krishna did all kinds of things. There was, there, there was a killer elephant at the gates of the city. Krishna killed this elephant who attacked him. There was a bow, some sort of reminiscent of the Ramayana. There was a concert that had this big 
huge bow set up and Krishna just went and broke it in pieces. In the wrestling arena, he killed the wrestlers and then Krishna had had enough because Kamsa, I mean, was persecuting the other dynasty and so there's this amazing scene where Krishna, when Krishna and Balaram together kill all these fighters, Kamsa sort of goes crazy with fear, with anger, with, he, just, he just goes into this rage. And he orders that uh, he wants everyone killed. He wants uh, he wants Krishna's parents killed. He wants everyone, you know, everyone, the other guys. He just wants everyone, everyone that in any way could be against him. He just wants them murdered, killed immediately on the spot. And Krishna thought, okay, that's it. So there's a scene where Krishna, there's this, imagine a big stadium, and at the top, Krishna's kind of in the luxury press box, you know. That's where Kamsa is. Kamsa is up at the top of the stadium watching things. Krishna rushes up to the top of the stadium. And and Kamsa, of course, realizes now the time has come. And he takes out his sword. Again, Kamsa isn't a sword. This is not an ordinary human being. This is a person who easily dominates and overwhelms even the greatest human fighters. So Kamsa pulled out his sword and, and tried to kill Krishna. Krishna just grabbed him and threw him off the top of the stadium uh, down to the floor of the stadium. Of course, killing him. And it's an amazing scene. This child, Krishna, rushing to the top of the stadium and just grabbing Kamsa and throwing him down. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you can imagine the shock. I mean, here, this, this is going on right in front of the whole city. And so then, just to, Christ, just to show the people that this tyrant is dead, that no one will have to fear Kams anymore, it said that Krishna grabbed him and just dragged him, like, said, like a lion drags his prey, just dragged him across the floor of the stadium just to show that the tyrant is dead. So, that was the end of Kamsa. And uh, there were other Asuras, who in a sense were even more powerful, who now would come forward. So, um, that's going on in the Torah, and around this time, maybe, maybe just maybe this takes place a little bit afterwards, but roughly around this time, the Pandavas come to Hastinapur, where they now live under the so-called care of their uncle, whose, whose only real desire is how to get his own son on the throne. Because now, the, now that the Pandavas are in Hastinapur, and the people, the people, of course, remember Pandu. Everyone remembers that, just, that, that their beloved king was Pandu, that he's the one that saved the Kuru dynasty, that he's the one that restored peace in the world. And so Pandu is, is this great hero, loved by all the people, who's now passed away. And the Pandavas... Uh, there's this amazing scene when the Pandavas first come down the mountains. People are looking and, and asking themselves, are those the sons of Pandu because they're these little yogis? And people realize, yes, they are the sons of Pandu. In fact, the people love Pandu so much that it said that when his funeral, when the funeral procession was coming down and when it was just approaching the capital city, that the entire city rushed out, you know, past the city walls and, and, and welcomed to, to, to receive the funeral procession and that people were grieving so much for the loss of the king that uh, for several days people didn't go back to the city they just literally slept on the earth 
and uh, just mourning the loss of their king. So the, the Pandavas, where you could say were just like wildly popular in Hastinapur, uh, people loved them, and um, were just waiting for them, like, when are they going to actually rule the kingdom? And meanwhile, Duryodhana, uh, Dhritarashtra, has only one thought in his mind, how to, use, how to get the kingdom away from the people, uh, uh, from the Pandavas, in a sense, without provoking a revolution, because uh, one last point I'll make this morning, is that an amazing thing about this uh, great civilization is that there was freedom of speech. You can find in many occasions in the Mahabharata that people will just go right out into the town square and in very strong language criticize and rebuke the king and there's not the slightest hint that that's illegal. There's no punishment, there's no repercussions, uh, no reprisals, you can do that. People have the freedom to criticize the government in this civilization. And uh, and it is a concern, which you find comes up now and then in the Mahabharata. It is a concern of Vitarastra that if he goes too far, the people will not accept it. And so you have this... this so in this situation, it's Duryodhana's son. Now, Vitarastra I mean, himself is not an Asura. He's just blind. I mean, not only physically, but in other ways as well. Duryodhana is a full-on Asura. He's an Asura. And when he, his, when he sees that his father supports him, his father is very attached to him and wants him to be king, but that his father is not going to take any drastic action, Duryodhana decides to take matters into his own hands and personally get rid of the Pandavas. So we'll talk about that this evening.